This is Mark chapter 6 from verse 45 through 56. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking, at the sea, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their hearts heart was hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognised him, ran through the whole surrounding region, and began to carry about excuse me, on beds those who were sick uh, to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Let's pray before we study this together. Lord God, as we come to dive deep into your word now, we pray that you would grant us rich understanding of your word. And we pray, Lord God, that the snuffling, spluttering, potential coughing that happens in the pulpit would be a wonderful encouragement to us that we don't trust in men to understand your word, but that you, in your spirit alone, revealing the truth to us. May we be more thankful for your spirit's work than ever this morning, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we saw an incredible series of events take place. We saw what culminated in the event of Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children as well. So potentially five to 10,000 people were fed from a small, very small amount of food. We don't know how it happened. We don't know the logistics of it. We just know that it happened. This miraculous event took place. Now, something that I said when we were studying that last week, particularly at the beginning, when we looked around verses 30 through 32, the disciples, the apostles who had gone out and had taught God's word had come back and didn't even have time to to eat because there were people going to and fro. One of the things I said last week was that Jesus organised for them to take time away. Now, I latched on to the implication last week that they needed time to rest spiritually. Uh, Mark obviously talks more about the physical need of rest that we have at times, but it's implied last week in those early verses that there is an importance of us resting spiritually, being refreshed, encouraged, reinvigorated through time with God, through time learning of God, through time in prayer. Now, this week, as we begin in verse 45, uh, through the first few verses there, we see that going from an implication to an actual direct message that Mark gives us. And we see that through the example of Jesus. Mark is much more direct with the need to take spiritual time out to recharge ourselves alone with God. We begin our reading this morning uh, in verse 45 immediately. This is straight after that massive day that had taken place, 5,000 plus people fed. Immediately after that, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. 
Now this verse right there, before we get to the, the rest of what we read today, has a lot to do with moving the accounts along while also giving us the context of where we're at. Jesus wraps up the events of this absolutely massive day. This massive day where the crowds having now been fed both through Jesus' teaching, which we read last week, he taught them many things. They've been fed spiritually. And then that physical feed of you know, five loaves, two fish, resulting in 12 basketfuls of leftover and no one being hungry, they've had a big feed in every sense we can imagine. No one is going to pass out from hunger on their journey home from here. And Jesus sends the crowd on their way. It had been a massive day. We sometimes focus on those events towards the end of that day as being, well, it got big towards the end of the day, but right from the start, it was a huge day. There were crowds just bustling around so much the apostles didn't even have a chance to eat. There's been this hub, this hive of activity surrounding Jesus and his disciples for an extended period of time. It culminated in the miraculous feeding, but it was a huge day all around. Jesus, after dismissing the crowds, sending them away after giving them every sort of feed they could want for, verse 46, goes alone into the mountains to pray. Now, some people will say that Jesus went into the mountains to pray because geographically that lifts Jesus a little bit higher to heaven. It's easier to have relationships with God. Uh, if that's the case, I would like a steeple attached to the church here because not only do they look good and people see that's a church, they get a little bit closer. No, I don't think that's part of it. It's just looking for a place where Jesus can have some quiet to spend time with God. It's away from the bustle of the crowds. It's away from where the craziness is happening. What happens on the mountain is something that Mark doesn't spend a whole heap of time on. But from the beginning here, before we get into the other miraculous things we see taking place today, we need to stop in these first few verses and note the fact that Jesus himself prioritised prayer. Jesus himself prioritised his own relationship with his Father in heaven. Jesus, who is God the Son, took time out to pray and to pray in a serious way where he wouldn't be interrupted. This is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, seeking God the Father in prayer. Now, this is not the main point of the passage. When we look at uh, narrative-style accounts, it's a, a general rule of thumb that the things that have the most ink spent on them by the author tends to be the more important thing. But this is still present, so we can't ignore it. And it leaves us with questions early on we need to be asking ourselves. If even Jesus takes prayer this seriously, do we take prayer this seriously? Do we take time away from the busyness of life? And life is busy, but do we take time away from the busyness of life to pray? It's a serious thing for us to consider. We were blessed to have a prayer meeting here yesterday, one I was very sorry to have missed. But Jesus prioritised prayer, and in the same way, we should prioritise prayer too. And just because we miss out on quiet at one point of the day, remember Jesus and his disciples got into the boat to head over there to a deserted place to have quiet, didn't quite work out. Just because we miss out on that time of quiet solitude with God at one point in the day doesn't mean we should give up for the rest of the day. 
At the end of the day, Jesus got what he had missed out on earlier. This is Christ's example for us. Now, again, that general rule of thumb, we focus more on those things that have more ink spent on them. But it's really important that we note the spiritual significance of prayer, the importance of it, and challenge ourselves in our hearts. As we go on to what comes next, some of you might have heard of a movie called A Walk to Remember. Well, what happens next? Anna made me watch it once. I can't remember much of it. What happens next is even more of a walk to remember. What happens next is an incredible series of things that happen. So Jesus, he's gone up alone to the mountain to pray. He returns to to seeming to be by the water where the disciples had, had got into a boat and to head over to the other side of the lake, of the Sea of Galilee. And we're told here that it was the fourth watch of the night. We see that in verse 48. Now, this means that we're somewhere between probably three and six o'clock in the morning. And I hope Zara is listening to this when I say that no one should be awake at that time. It's very, very early hours of the morning. And this is a scene that's being set for us. Early hours of the morning. Jesus is on the land. The apostles, the disciples, they're in a boat. And they're in a boat and they're straining, they're working hard to get to the other side because a strong wind has risen up against them. It's working against them, they're working against the wind. Now, I suspect that by now, whoever is responsible for choosing the time and place of their aquatic adventures is probably in a little bit of trouble. Now, there's fishermen here and they seem to always get themselves in trouble when they're on the water. They can't even make much headway against this wind. Now, we're not told that explicitly, but we are told in verse 48, as we see what Jesus does, walking on the water. We won't pretend the, to keep that under, under wraps. We know that's what happened because we read it. Jesus could have overtaken them by walking on the water. They aren't going anywhere fast. They are working hard. Now, we need to be serious about this. Jesus did not grab a smaller vessel that would be less affected by the wind to row a little bit quicker past these guys. He wasn't in a one-man kayak. He was walking on the sea. Jesus walked on water. It is another miracle. The miracles just keep coming. Now, there are skeptics of these accounts. We know that there are people who scoff at these accounts that took place. They know they just couldn't happen. They could not happen that way. Some skeptics suggest that there, is a, there was a very long jetty or pier underwater that Jesus walked along. There are no historical accounts of any such jetty existing, and that would be a tremendous hazard for any boat. Did not happen. Others suggest, well, no, it wasn't a jetty, it's just an extended sandbank. And Jesus would say, if you can't, yeah, being sort of ankle deep in water is walking on water, then yeah, that's what Jesus did. But again, there are no historical geographic surveys that suggest that this is the case. What Mark doesn't tell us is that in other accounts after this, Mark doesn't tell us this here, is that the crowds who were on the land, who hadn't yet gone home, who were nearby, they woke up the morning after this. They knew that Jesus' disciples had got into a boat to row to the other side. They knew that there were no other boats missing, but somehow Jesus was not with them anymore come the morning. 
And those accounts are not disputed by any of the eyewitnesses there when these gospel letters were written. This is something we have nothing to prove against this. All the evidence suggests that Jesus did, in fact, walk on water, just as Mark and the gospel writers tell us he did. It's a divine event taking place in Mark. It is another divine event taking place in Mark's gospel. And we read this and we go, wow, that looks cool. We have CGI in our movies. We, we know what these sorts of things can look like when they're done up. And we have a bit of a picture of what this would look like. But these are people who didn't have access to CGI movies. And if you didn't have access to that and you saw somebody walking towards you on the water, you would probably have the same sort of reaction that the apostles had. And even if we did have that, you'd probably still be a little bit worried about what is happening. It's early hours of the morning. They're exhausted from the strain of rowing against the wind. And then there's somebody walking over the surface of the water towards them. I don't know how I'd respond to that, but it might be a little bit like the apostles. They saw this figure and it must be a ghost. Jesus can't be here, he's back on land. And he doesn't have a boat, he can't be walking on the water, it must be a ghost. The figure they saw, they supposed it to be a ghost. I love that word suppose in the New King James there. Makes you wonder what the discussion was that took place. They, plural, suppose. You know, was there a discussion here? What do you think, fellas? What is that? Oh, I'm not sure. It must be a ghost. Yeah, let's unanimously agree that it's a ghost. Let's take a vote. Well, we don't know what the discussion was, but they, they assumed, they supposed that it was a ghost. And what they said doesn't really matter. What matters is their response. They all saw him. Not some of them saw him, all of them saw him. And when they all saw him, they were greatly afraid. But on seeing their fear, Jesus speaks to their hearts. Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Once more, Jesus speaks to the hearts of the disciples. It is I, it's not an apparition of me, it's me. He acknowledges their fear. He knows what they think he is seeming to be contained within the response here. And Jesus meets the need in the heart of his disciples. He meets the need and has comfort, or comforts his people. He is so gracious. He is so good. And we see him do this over again, comforting the hearts of his people. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody's been terrified and you try and provide some sort of comfort to them? When I was, I'm going to say 15, mum and dad had gone to a Bible study on the south side of Brisbane. Uh, dad was leading the Bible study and they had made the silly decision to leave me and Ryan at home alone and I was in charge. Ryan was convinced there was somebody outside the house. I'd just done a history project where I'd built a five-foot axe. It was made of timber. And I said to Ryan, you know what, if they get in here, use this axe. Yeah, an axe. Now, what that did, I thought it was comforting to Ryan to go, here's something you can defend yourself with. All I did was confirm his suspicion that somebody was going to not only be around the house, but get into the house. It took probably a year before mum and dad trusted me and Ryan to be home alone again. And it's more the lack of trust in me, which was well earned. See, sometimes when we try and comfort people, we just, we, we, we miss the mark sometimes. We don't always do a great job. 
But we never see that with Jesus. We never see that with our good and our faithful God, who is able to do everything that we think is even impossible. He always comforts us as we need. Hits a nail on the head every single time. And he went up into the boat with them. And the wind stopped. Uh, we get the idea. These guys have been fighting the wind for, for hours. They've been striving against this wind and they just couldn't get far. Jesus has, has calmed a storm before and stilled the waters with just his words. But this time he doesn't even say anything. He doesn't say anything. But this wind that was so strong is stopped. The the disciples have seen two incredible things take place. By the end of verse 51, we see these guys are just, they're they're marvelling. They were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and they marvelled. What is all of this? These events are still spoken about by by non-believers today. Yes, sometimes in a mocking way, but this event of walking on water is just massive. It's one that people are aware of as associated with Christ, whether they believe in him or not. And then, the other divine event in here, which as I said before, without saying anything, Jesus stilled the wind. These things are why the amazement and the marvelling of the disciples is so great at the end of verse 51. Jesus has just done these incredible things. There's no doubt that Jesus himself has done this. Now we break these passages down into bite-sized pieces because there's no way you could preach on the whole Gospel of Mark faithfully in one sermon. You just couldn't do it. But think back to the last 12 to 14 hours that have taken place. The disciples said, look, there's too many people here. This crowd is too big for us to feed. Jesus, it's better if you send them away. They can get their own food elsewhere from the cities around here. Send them away. Jesus says, no, we're going to look after them. And from five small loaves and two fish, he fed 10,000 people with leftovers. He's now walked on water. And he has calmed the wind without even saying anything. Those are three miracles within the space of 12 to 14 hours. Verse 52. Seems to be too much for the apostles, for the disciples, for they had not understood about the loaves. They're marvelling. They hadn't even got their head around the stuff that happened with the feeding the evening before this. And maybe we're thinking, okay, they're just overloaded. There's too much for the human mind here to process. If they had a little bit more time to, to comprehend these things, they'll come to grips with it. But Mark shows us where their hearts are at. Their hearts were hardened. As a group, their heart singular was, was hardened. They're in this together. They still don't believe. Even these people, who go back to less than 24 hours before this, had returned from teaching, from healing, to casting out demons with the authority and power given to them by Jesus, still didn't see who Jesus was. 
of the things that were prophesied in the Old Testament, most clearly in Isaiah, that people would see without really knowing what was happening here, without understanding the things of God that they were taught, those things are still taking place. It seems to be, especially we see with Peter, it's not until after he meets Jesus after the resurrection that the, as with Paul, as we saw on Wednesday night in Bible study, the scales falling away from his eyes that spiritual understanding is given. They, they understand there's more to Jesus than the normal man. They know that Jesus is more than anything they could imagine, but they still don't understand that he is God. They want to be near to him. They like the good things that he offers. They accept the good things he offers. They're faithful in going out and doing these amazing things, but there is still a difference between seeing God as good and having faith in God. That has not yet happened for these guys. So when they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, we we shouldn't be surprised by the scene that that takes place there. They, they get out of the boat. The people recognize Jesus. They, they go, wow, this is, this is a guy we've been waiting for. Let's go and get all of the sick people we can. We'll put them on stretches. We'll bring them to him. Every town, every city, every country that Jesus entered into, we see these scenes of people coming saying, heal us. Make my friend better. Make my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my, my co-worker. Make them better. People want more of Jesus, but they don't want more of Jesus as God. They want more of Jesus the healer, Jesus the exorcist. They want the healing. They want the authoritative teaching. They want the demons to be exorcised. It hasn't got into their hearts yet. And he healed so many people. In many villages and towns and countries and cities, he did amazing things. And the focus of the crowds is not on the, the person of Christ himself. The focus on the crowds is what can he give to us? What can we get out of this? It's like in that kid's talk of not being able to express, not being willing to express thanks to the one who gives the gifts, but just taking it and going and using it for what we can get out of it. And this, is, this can be a, where the trap lies for us too. I was horrified recently to hear about a reformed pastor being criticised for saying that God blesses his people. In one church, people said, no, that's prosperity gospel. You cannot say that God blesses his people. We don't want to hear from that person again. Don't have him preach here again. It's not. That is not prosperity gospel. That is not an appropriate response to that. God does bless his people. We, as God's people, have freedom from sin. That great verse that Chris read out from Colossians earlier, it's right that we repent of our sins, but we must remember the full remission of sins that we have as Christians. Those promises that God gives to Abraham, that God would bless him and his family, that God would bless those who are faithful from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, those covenant faithful blessings that God pours out on his people. 
every little thing we own, every breath we take is a gift of God's grace to us and another blessing among unnumbered blessings that he has given to us. God does bless his people, but if, if we say, God, I'm only going to come to you for what I can get out of it, never once being thankful or grateful for the salvation that God has won for us, salvation that we needed because we got ourselves into a problem with our hardness of heart that God didn't bring about for us, but he saved us from regardless. If we never show gratefulness and thankfulness for that, we have a problem. And this is where the crowds seem to be. Give us more, but we still don't believe. God is infinitely bigger than us. God is over, above and before all things. Another part of Colossians 1 is that Christ is preeminent. He is before all things. There is nothing to compare with him. God is the one who walked on water. God is the one who stopped this strong wind without even saying a word. This is the God who has healed countless Countless people. He is the one who speaks comfort to our hearts. And this reminds us that life should not be about us, but God. God does bless his people. But the focus of our lives isn't what we should get out of God, but what we can do for this God who is just so amazing. He is not a genie in a bottle where we rub the bottle three times and he comes out and he grants us a certain number of wishes. We shouldn't just focus on the blessings that God has given to us, but we should also focus on the one who does the blessing. God should be our focus. God should be our focus every time we come here to worship. God should be our focus every time we hop in the car or the bus or the train to go to work. God should be our focus every time we spend time with our grandchildren. God should be our focus every time we sit down at the dinner table together. God should be our focus in every single thing that we do. And we need to remember that. We need to remember to avoid falling into the trap that the crowds were falling for at this point, and even, even the apostles. As we read more of these things to help us remind us of this more, we should be amazed more and more and more by God. By the God who truly is to be blessed and praised and worshipped in and through all that we do. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would work in each one of our hearts. You know that we each face the temptation at times to make life all about us at the expense of you. We thank you that you are a God who is gracious and patient with us, gracious and patient with us even when we do this. Yet we pray, O oh God, that your spirit would work in each one of us, that he would curb those, those tendencies we have to make things all about us and that we might remember you in everything. Help us to see that you are the God who is not limited by 
any laws of physics or water tension or changes in weather system pressure that affect the wind, but you are above all of these things and you are the God who has saved us from our sin. Help us to rejoice in you and glorify you every single breath we take. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.